Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open with me to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. Matthew 24, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to make sure you have one in your lap. Uh, Just put your hand up. We'll make sure you have one. Scotty will get you one. Lift your hand up high. We want to make sure you have the word in your hand. Matthew 24, and actually one other place, Revelation chapter 6. Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. I told you last week we're getting into the Olivet Discourse, and we'll be in that for a few weeks. Um, You know, kind of looking at not necessarily trying to apply it to every, every event that happens, um, you know, in the world, but we'll be looking at a big, big picture, um, you know, level of uh, Matthew 24. And so uh, if you're a guest with us, as Mike said, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here this morning. We have a, a welcome packet that we'd like to give you in the Welcome Center directly across from the sanctuary doors. So make sure you stop by and grab one of those. And... Um, Let's stand, and we're going to read Matthew chapter 24, the first few verses to get started this morning. You guys excited? Man, we're in Matthew 24. Come on. Let's go. This is awesome. I love, I love prophecy. So here we go. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We are grateful for the unfolding of the future, Lord, the revealing of the future for us. We don't have to wonder, Lord, what will be. We can look around the world today and we can see signs that you've given We know, Lord, that your time is coming soon. Even the disciples, John writing in just, just, you know, 50 years after Jesus lived, in these last days, speaking that they were in the last days. Lord, the minute, minute hand is moving. May your church be moving with it. We pray you would convict our hearts this morning, God, that you would help us all to see our need for Jesus and our need to share Jesus in this world. So, Lord, we ask that you come teach us now. Speak, Lord, through your word this morning to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were with us last week, you recall that Jesus was in the temple, on the temple mount. He was in the the women's court there where the treasury was, and he was observing people giving. And as I caught one particular lady who had these two small coins in her hand worth about a day's meal, maybe maybe a, a meal for the day, two mites, he watched her give and he told his disciples, look at her, that's how you give. He talked about the idea of, of sacrificial giving and just giving it all to the Lord, everything that you are, and that it, that is an act of worship to him and that he is worthy of that. It's not about the amount, it's about the heart. It's about giving what he calls you to give. It's here that as as Jesus is now departing the Temple Mount, probably through the Eastern Gate, which should peak your your ears up when Jesus goes through the Eastern Gate because that's the same gate that he'll come back into that same temple with. Through the Eastern Gate there 
he is walking through the Kidron Valley, which then up on the other side is the Mount of Olives on the east side of the Temple Mount. And as Jesus is departing the, the temple there, um, he, he, he sits upon the Mount of Olives and he gives what becomes the longest discourse of, his, of any discourse that Jesus gives, a teaching uh, regarding what to expect relating to his coming and the end of the age. It's an incredible teaching that Jesus has given to, you know, you know, to be matched with the Sermon on the Mount, which is obviously principles that we want to apply to our lives. But this right here is, puts the urgency in our heart to go and share the gospel. You know, a lot of people just steer away from prophecy in general because they think, like, well, what does that have to do with us? You know, uh, we're the church, and it obviously, depending on your, your, your eschatology, if you're pre-trib, then you're, you're saying, hey, we're going to be gone before the tribulation starts, so what does that matter to us? Well, it matters, it matters a lot because the gospel needs to go forward. It needs to go out. And there should be an urgency in your heart every moment of every day that you live that you should, um, you know, be saying, who can I share the gospel with today? Because this world is going to experience something that to the likes, as, uh, you know, Donald Trump would say, to the likes that this world has never seen, that this world can ever see. This is going to be divine judgment that is going to be poured out upon the world for a seven-year period, and you don't want to be here for that. You don't want to be here for that. And God is a rescuer. He is a savior, and he wants to rescue us out of his wrath. Now, as you approach this passage, you have to, you know, consider um, first and foremost the heart of his disciples. When, when, G- when Jesus was with them, their, their theology was, or their eschatology was that he was there to set up his kingdom. And so they're anticipating him at, at any moment, any moment. This is imminent. They're saying, when is your coming and the end of this age? Like, we expect it to happen now, Jesus. And Jesus, he unfolds what the future will be for them. And it wasn't necessarily going to happen in their time, but there is a period of time. We don't know that time. That's why there should be an urgency in your heart always. You know, when you come to prophecy, it's interesting that there's always a a short-sighted fulfillment, like something happens quickly. When you read the book of Isaiah, you see, uh, you know, things happen during that time, you know, for unto us a child is born. Well, you know, Isaiah chapter 7, and there was a child born, and, and he would be a savior to Israel, but that was a partial fulfillment of what he was talking about. He was really pointing to the Messiah. So when you come to prophecy, you have to consider, you know, if you look around, if you look through Scripture and you see fulfillment throughout, you know, if you look through the history of the church or down through the time when Jesus has come and you see some of those signs or you see fulfillment of various things, you have to ask yourself, was that a partial fulfillment? Is there more to come? And then obviously you look at the rest of Scripture to figure that out. But when you come to these kind of passages, you, you have to come with, with, with the idea that Jesus can come at any moment. Like there's nothing else that has to happen. We're not waiting for any other event to happen. Everything that, ha- that was supposed to have happened has happened. There's not another prophetic, uh, you know, pr- a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. He could come back at any moment. So we need to be ready as a church. We need to be ready. His disciples were ready. They were anticipating his coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to crack the sky and come get you? Are you ready? Listen, if you're not, 
get ready today. Get ready. Don't mess around. Don't mess around. Time waits for no man. He is coming back shortly. Now, the disciples were leaving the, the temple, and obviously in this time period, the temple was a huge thing. Uh, the Jews surrounded their lives around the temple. They, the, the temple was the nucleus of uh, the worship of Israel. And so, you know, the temple was a big thing. And it was awesome, man. The temple that, that Herod had built, he, he refabbed. You know, you want to talk about doing a makeover on, on uh, Zerubbabel's tubble, uh, t his temple. Man, did Herod do an incredible work on the temple that sat there the day that Jesus, uh, you know, during Jesus' time. It wasn't even complete as Jesus was sitting in there. It, it took 80 years for Herod's temple to be complete. What's interesting is that it wouldn't be complete until uh, 63 AD. And if you know anything about history, in 70 AD, it, it te it's tore down. Seven years, it was complete. And then it was torn down. During Jesus' time there, maybe 33 AD or so, he's walking in this temple that's still kind of being constructed, but it's a massive sight, man. It is incredible to see. Uh, you know, I have some, uh, I have a picture of uh, a, a model that was uh, replicating his temple uh, during that time. It was massive. This thing was huge. It was 500 meters by 400 meters. Just for a reference, that means that you could put four and a half football fields on the temple mount there. It was big. It was huge. Um, the temple mount walls that surrounded uh, the, the temple there uh, were some 10 to 16 stories high on average. And at the pinnacle, it was a 450-foot drop from the top of the Temple Mount wall down to the valley, the Kidron Valley. It, was, it just towered, man. It just, and even today, as, you're, as you go to Israel, you can see how it would have towered. It, it still towers. When you're standing across in the Mount of Olives looking on the eastern wall of, uh, of, of, of the Temple Mount, you're like, whoa, this thing is massive. It's big. It's huge. I couldn't imagine what it looked like back then. It was an incredible structure. The stones that constructed the walls were approximately 40 feet long and 25 feet thick. You can see a picture of one of them up there. Listen, they were cut so perfectly, off-site. Like they weren't cut on-site to make sure they matched. They were cut off-site, and they were cut so perfectly that you couldn't even slide a blade between them. They didn't use motor or anything. I mean, they were so precise. This, these things were 160,000 pounds apiece. I don't know how you even move one of those kind of stones back in that day, let alone this day. I don't know how you stack those kind of things back in that day, but they figured it out. The Lord gave them the wisdom to do it. They, I mean, Herod was an incredible builder. The kind of things that he built were were wonders of the world, like the structures that he built. This temple was one of the wonders of the world. The buildings were so impressive that Jew, the Jewish historian Josephus says that the temple and, and, and the, the building walls were covered with gold plates. And when the sun shined down upon the temple mount, it would blind you because it was just so brilliant. And, and, and if there wasn't gold covering some of the stones, the, the marble that was used was so white that people would think that there was snow on top of the um, temple mount. It was a brilliant and, and magnificent sight to see. No wonder the disciples turned to Jesus and they said in Mark 13, 1, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. No wonder they turned around and said, Jesus, look at, look at this marvel. 
Look how incredible this building is, this structure. Look at how beautiful it is, Lord. Oh, Lord, one day soon, you're going to run that temple. One day soon, you're going to sit in that temple, and you're going to control all of this. Oh, Lord, it's going to be glorious. Uh, Newsflash, that temple right there, boys, is going to be destroyed. Destroyed. You can imagine their shock as they hear his words. What do you mean destroyed? Do you don't, are you looking at the same temple I'm looking at? It's massive. It's huge. Lord, what do you mean destroyed? Do you understand the kind of force that it would take to take that? Wait a second. What does that mean for me? How does that affect me? If this massive structure is going to be completely toppled, what will happen to me? You can imagine the fear that struck their hearts when they heard these words from Jesus. Not one stone will lie upon another. Like it's going to be, it's going to be a total destruction and we know that that happened. There was a fulfillment of that in 70 AD. Jesus wasn't trying to sensationalize anything. He wasn't trying to, you know, he wasn't trying to fear them into to, to something or threaten them. He was simply stating a fact that the temple was going to be flattened. Listen, because of the disobedience of the people of Israel. That's why this is happening. That's why this is happening. That's why the first temple was tore down, was the disobedience of the people. If the people would have been obedient to the Lord, they wouldn't have experienced the judgment of God. This was God's judgment upon the people. Listen, if God tears down uh, his temple, he's not pleased with what's happening in there. You understand that? If God allows his temple to be tore down, he's not pleased with the kind of worship that's happening in there. The Jewish people were disobedient to the Lord. And so he is chastising them. He will kick them out of their land. What's fascinating is he's, he's faithful, even when we are not faithful. You know, God says that, that if, if the disobedient people would just turn their hearts back to him, that he would, he, would, he would recant, that he would release that wrath from them, that he wouldn't pour it out, and, and yet they wouldn't do it. Jesus said, oh, how I long to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You weren't willing to allow me to do that. And because of the hardness of your heart, you will now experience judgment upon the city, upon the temple, upon this nation. But the promise that God gave Israel always was that they would repent, if they would turn their heart back to him, that he would rescue them. I was just reading in my devotions recently in 2 Chronicles 15, 1 through 4. We see the promise right here. It says this, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. What was being spoken to, to Asa here was the idea, if you will just repent and turn, turn back towards the Lord, God will heal your land. 
2 Chronicles 7, 14, that he will do, he will humble, he will, will you come humbly before him in repentance, that he will heal your nation. And he did. And Asa turned. The whole nation turned. And the Lord began to bless. And some 35 years they had peace. But then, then the Lord sent another prophet. Asa didn't like what he was saying. And so he put him in jail. And the Lord then brought the enemies against Israel. It's, it's the way the Lord works in our lives. It's chastisement. He will not allow us to walk in disobedience for very long. If you're, if you're walking in disobedience today, understand it's short term. The Lord will not allow you to walk in that, calling Him your Savior, your Lord, and then walking completely contrary to His Word. I'm not saying that to, to, to create fear. I'm, I'm saying that so that you understand when the chastisement comes where it's coming from. Because God loves you and He has a plan for you and He wants to um, work in your life and He will, um, you're, you're His child. And just as any good parent would do to their child, they would discipline their child. They would show them the way through discipline. The Lord will do the same to you. And it's only because He loves you. And so if you're sitting here today and you're experiencing some of that you know, chastisement in your life, you're, you've got circumstances in your life that you're just like, why does this keep happening to me? The Lord would say to you this morning, take a look at how you're living your life. Who are you living for? What kind of choices are you making? Are you walking by the Spirit or are you walking by the flesh? Because if you're walking by the flesh, it can only, only result in the flesh, which is destruction. But if you're walking in the Spirit, it produces fruit. And it produces life. And the Lord would say, hey, I'm just trying to get you back on track here. Now, don't get me wrong. The Lord doesn't create every circumstance in our life because of um, sin in our life or anything like that. Sometimes it has nothing to do with that. Sometimes it's just purely because we are walking uh, with the Lord and it, it, it's spiritual warfare. But what I'm saying is, you know, examine your heart, as Paul would say, to see whether you're in the faith. Are you walking in the spirit? Or are you walking in the flesh? That's what he would say if you find yourself in the flesh this morning, the Lord would just say, turn back. Repent. I'm faithful. I'll receive you back. I'll love on you. I'm not by any means saying that, you know, uh, this, this is a works-based salvation. It's all about your repentance because there is that idea out there as well. What I'm saying is the blood of Christ covers you from all sin. He's cleansed you as we just talked about. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing else that can do that. But what I'm saying is in terms of if being used, being a vessel, being, uh, you know, somebody that the Lord can use, you need to walk in obedience to the Lord. He's faithful to forgive and restore through repentance. And he, he restored the Jewish nation. They were cast out. Listen, they were a people without a land. They were a nation without a land for over 2,000 years. Now, now, where are the Hittites in the world today? We, they don't exist because their land was taken over and their people were dispersed. The Jewish people are, one of the, are the only nation, the only nation that ever uh, you know, was able to continue to stay gathered as a people without, a, without a, a, a land to live in. Is that incredible? That's the faithfulness of God. And he would bring them back in their land and he would restore them. And there is a spiritual blindness over Israel currently. And, and this is everything that I'm saying has everything to do with Matthew 24. Because what we believe as a movement is that God is not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Much everything that's being spoken of in Matthew 24 
we're going to see is being spoken to Jewish men from a Jewish rabbi about a Jewish nation. And, and, and he's going to talk about wrath that's going to be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting nation for the purpose of judgment, but also for the purpose of steering Israel back into, back into play. The Lord has not turned his back on Israel, and he will not turn his back on you. You just turn back to him this morning. Titus came into Jerusalem in 70 AD. He demolished the temple. His intentions were not to destroy the temple, though. He didn't mean to do that. One of his soldiers in a drunken stupor threw a, um, a you know, some sort of a, a, I don't know what it was, a, a, a stick with fire on it or something into the temple. It started on fire. The fire got out of control. And because all the gold was, was you know, on the temple walls and all of that, it all started to melt and it all got oozed into the cracks and, and all of that. And so uh, Titus said, well, what else can we do but dismantle this thing to get all that gold? And that's the reason it happened. No, that's not the reason it happened. The reason it happened is because God said it was going to happen. He had no intentions of doing that. And yet, the word of the Lord proves true. It will always prove true. Jesus, after saying that to his disciples, takes a seat on the Mount of Olives, and, and, and that's why this is called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is now given his teaching from the Mount of Olives there. And you can imagine the fear that has struck the hearts of his disciples as they consider this destruction that is going to happen upon their land. Sounds familiar to me, particularly in light of what's happening in our nation today. You know, fear stri striking the hearts of believers and people in our country as we consider where we sit with North Korea and a nuclear war and, and all of these kind of things. And so you can understand where they're sitting. They're saying, man, what will happen to me? So the disciples come to the Lord, and they ask him these questions. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, there are two or three questions there. It doesn't really matter, but Jesus answers them. But he starts in reverse order. So he starts out by talking about what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4 through chapter 25, he begins to answer these questions. When we get to Matthew 24, 36, he switches and he starts to talk about the wind. But prior to that, he is talking about what the signs will be of his coming and the end of the age. Now, there are tons of different interpretations of this passage, of, of this text, and, you know, you have your interpretation and whatnot, I'm sure, but... Here's some things that I think you have to keep in mind when you start to read a text like this. There's three things that I want to show you. Firstly, the context. Who's Jesus speaking to? In Mark chapter 13, verse 3, it says that as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So it's these four Jewish guys. They are asking their Jewish rabbi about, about Israel's eschatology. They're saying, what will be of us and when will your coming be and all of that? Because uh, the Messiah was a, a savior to Israel. And, and so they're asking this question. So context is critical as you move through this passage. You have to continue to make yourself understand who Jesus is speaking to. That will keep you in context. If you don't get the context right, you will not get the interpretation right. You understand, you, you, you come to the text with this question in mind, what is the writer trying to say? 
Who is he speaking to? That is the context, and you have to stay in those lanes, otherwise you'll make a bunch of nonsense. And so you have to understand that firstly. Secondly, you have to consider what is the rest of Scripture has to say about the subject that's being spoken about. What I'm telling you is that the Bible does not contradict itself contrary to popular belief. And so if there's a contradiction, it's a contradiction in understanding. It's not a contradiction in what's being said. So you have to measure Scripture against Scripture. Let the Bible say what it says and let it interpret itself. Okay, number two. Number three, we have to consider what Jesus is saying as partial and full fulfillment. So there is a maybe a, a historical fulfillment of what he's saying and then also a future fulfillment. Now, there are people that are they're labeled as preterists that don't believe, um, that, that believe that basically most of what Jesus said here was um, fulfilled by the first century and that everything else is symbolic. That, it, that they don't take a, non, they take a non-literal reading of the Scripture. Now, we as Calvary Chapel, we take a very literal reading of the Scripture unless it doesn't make sense. When, when Scripture contradicts itself, then we have to ask ourselves, is this literal, is this non-literal, what does this mean? I, I love what Pastor Chuck said. You can write this down in your Bible, it's a good one. He said, when the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense, lest you make nonsense. I love that. When the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense lest you make nonsense. You know, people make a lot of nonsense out of what's being spoken of, particularly in prophecy. And, and they come up with all kinds of different codes and different things to try and come up with some, some kind of interpretation like we have to crack the code. Listen to me. Prophecy is one of those things that you don't have to crack. The Bible speaks for itself. It interprets itself. When Jesus said something, if he wants you to know exactly what it means, he will reveal it to you. The Holy Spirit will teach you. You don't have to try and figure it out. You just humbly come to the Lord and say, Lord, show me. When, when you read the book of Revelation, that, there's a blessing in it. For those who seek to understand it, yes, there's some, it's, it's an interesting book and people steer away from it because they, they, it's, it's, they think it's complicated. Just read it literally and you won't have a problem. You start reading symbolically, then you don't know what to take literally and what not to. And so you have to, first and foremost, you have to consider the context of the passage. You have to, secondly, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And thirdly, you have to take a literal view of the Scripture and what's being said in light of the rest of Scripture unless it doesn't make sense. So those are the kind of ways that I use to interpret the Bible. And I, I have arrived at a place of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church prior to the, um, the, the tribulation period, which means spoken of here. Now, I'm not going to talk about the rapture today because it, it'll take us too much time to get into, but the reality is that there will be a catching away of the church. And that catching away of the church, we believe, is going to be pre-tribulation because the Bible says that we're not appointed to wrath. You know, as believers in Christ, who took our wrath on the cross? Jesus Christ did. And so we're not appointed to wrath. And, and so as we consider that in the light of Scripture and the rest of what Scripture says, you know, we have to look at Matthew 24 maybe a little differently than some do. And so with that said, you know, the disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us what the signs will be, Lord, of your coming and the end of the age. And so he begins there in verse 4, and he, Jesus answered them, 
See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but beginning of birth pains. You know, as I read this here, I can't help but be reminded of the infamous Braxton Hicks contractions. You know, I've never had one before, but it doesn't look fun. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have one. I, my wife is way tougher than I am four times along. She has had what is called Braxton Hicks contractions. These are pre-contractions. Sometimes they start as early as the second trimester into the third trimester, and they are just pre-signs of, of, of the labor that will come soon. That's, th- that's what they are. They're, they're like pre-labor signs. Oh, man, it, you know, and I remember my wife having our first kid. I was like, man, are you scared? I'm scared for you. Those things seem like they hurt, you know. I'm like, my goodness, I don't, I don't ever want to experience anything like that. I'm sorry that you have to do this. You know, th- that lady should not have eaten of that fruit in the tree. You know, she, you would not be having this problem right now, but sorry, you know. It was scary for me, but, but, you know, I remember the first time she started to have them, it was kind of a little scary. Those were nothing. Those were nothing compared to what she was about to experience. And, you know, she was a trooper, man. She's tough. She didn't say anything. She just took a stick and just, you know, just... <laughs> She, uh, she's a tough lady, let me tell you. But that's what Jesus is saying here about th- this time period, about these things that are happening. These are, just, these are just pre-contractions. Like the labor will come in the tribulation time. That's when real labor will happen. And at the end of the labor comes what? The baby. Comes Jesus Christ. And so as he's talking about this period of time, that there, there's going to be these pre-signs, you know, these, these pre-contractions of things that will happen. And, and, um, and firstly, he tells us that there will be false Christs will come. Now, historically, there have been countless false Christs. Even John, I'll read a scripture to you here just a little bit later, that you'll see he's even saying there have been false Christs that have come in their day. There have been false Christs all, even in our day today, there are still false messiahs that say, I am Jesus. Can you believe it? Dude, there's one guy in Miami, he says his name is Jesus, he drinks and he smokes cigars, but he says he's the Messiah, and, he, and he's just kind of living, living loosely, it's just crazy, but there will be false Christ. They will, their aim will be to deceive and to lead astray. Now, who does that? The enemy. They are propagators of the devil. They, are, they belong to him. They're false cries. You, you, you don't have to ever worry about wondering if Jesus is here. You know that? You're not going to have to wonder, like, what if I miss him? What if I don't see him? What if, the Bible promises you will not miss him. You won't have to wonder, is that him or not? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You will not have to wonder if it's Jesus or not. That's straight up scripture, man. It will be apparent to everyone. 
Not only that, but Jesus goes on. He says, listen, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. And, and you know, you're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have all kinds of uh, catastrophic things happen. But, but listen, the end is not yet. These are just pre-contractions. And there have been wars and rumors of wars. And there will continue to be wars and rumors of wars. We're fighting a war. There's a rumor of war. I mean, that has continued from the day that Jesus spoke it till now. There'll be wars and uh, rumors of wars. Listen, see that. Circle that in your Bible. You can write off to the side. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. That's what it means. Be on notice. Do not fear. Walk by faith. Do not be deceived. Listen, these must take place. It must take place. God is doing this to align the world to the place that he will then come down and judge the world. He is getting stuff in order. You know, God is strategically moving the chess pieces around to to get the world in a place where his judgment will come down. And understand, that is all his grace. The fact that he's even moving moving the things around is his grace. He wants people to be saved. He does not want people to be judged. If God wanted people to be judged, he would have just judged us and got on with it. But he loves us. You were in his heart from the foundation of the world, and Jesus was slain for you. He said, I will pay for your sin. He loves you that much. And God is telling you this morning, listen, you have an opportunity, if you don't know me, to come to know me this morning. Don't turn away from me. Turn toward me. He wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. There is going to be famines and earthquakes, and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, you know, there are constantly earthquakes all over the place. And, you know, are there more than there ever have been? We don't know because we just have better technology. We can measure them now, and we, but we hear about them every day, don't we? Listen, there are famines across the world even today. There always have been. 12 to 13% of the world's population is starving to death. There are famines in the world today. And yet Jesus says these are just Braxton Hicks contractions. The intense labor is going to come in the tribulation. Jesus says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't be sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked, Christian. Don't get so caught up in trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back that you forget about living for him today. Don't get so sidetracked in the world saying, oh, you know, he's coming back one day and it really doesn't matter to me because I'm going to be gone, that you're not propagating the gospel to people, that you're not sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to people. Don't be deceived. And it can happen both ways. Don't be deceived. Jesus is telling us that we can be shaken by what we see and hear, but we have to trust the Lord. As we enter in verse 9, I believe Jesus now begins to describe the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. At that point, again, the church is caught away. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, here's the scripture. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. The tribulation period, again, is a a time period where God's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and also he's going to deal with Israel. 
So here's the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will, be, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. Again, the question of what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the ages laid out here. The sign of his coming will be a very, very clear persecution of his people. Very clear persecution of his people, like a persecution that has never happened on earth before. Like a persecution where not just a nation stands against Christianity or a few nations, but the nations. Like there is a uniting of the entire world uh, singularly with one purpose, and that is to wipe out Christ's followers. Now, there's never been anything like that before. During this time, there will be a, a, a complete and total hatred of Christians, and we see the things being aligned right now. We see it, man. We see, you know, look what's happened to Europe. Some of the greatest preachers in the, in, the, in the 17th and 18th century came from Europe, and now it's a dead nation. It's a, all the countries in Europe, they're pretty much godless. There's like a, something less than 5% of people that even go to church. They have these beautiful cathedral churches that, you know, the likes of Charles Spurgeon and these have spoken in the pulpits there, and yet they are empty. They have a congregation of 20. And when you go on the streets, I, w I was street witnessing one time in Sarasota, Florida, and I met these people from England. And I started to talk to their kids about Jesus. And the, the mom and dad, um, you know, I don't know if they were believers or what, but they said, you know, where we live, it's really difficult for young people because they, they hate Christians. They don't just not like them. They hate them. And they make fun of them and they persecute them. And I was like, Wow. And then a couple years later, I had an opportunity to go to Europe. And so here I am on a, um, I'm on a train. There's probably a group of 10, 18 to 20-year-old kids. And so I start to talk to them about God. And guess what I was met with? Hatred. Exactly what that lady said. It's true. But that's not just there. It's starting to filter into our country. Now we have a whole alignment. I mean, we're talking about being tolerant in our country, and yet the most intolerance in our country is against believers. It's against people that are simply just trying to live out their faith. But we're intolerant. But they're intolerant. But we, we are. No, they are. You know, we got spirit. Yes, we do. You know, kind of thing, and that's back at you. That's how it works. Listen. There will be persecution in this world like nobody has ever seen before. And it's because they hate Jesus. They hate his name. We sang it today. It's a powerful name. But they hate his name. They hate his name. And they will persecute those in the tribulation period because of it. Listen, those who are saved during the tribulation will be required to endure much. Far more than anybody 
on this side of that seven years has ever endured. They will have to endure some serious, serious persecution. They won't be able to be part of any kind of, of the economic world during that time if they don't have the mark of the beast. You're not going to be able to buy or sell or get a job. You're not going to be able to earn money. You're not going to be able to feed your family. You're not going to be able to do a lot of things. God will see people through. He will have 144,000 Jews sealed that he will, those are, I guess I would consider them the Elijahs of that time, and they will go into the world and they will share the gospel. 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah Witnesses. 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each nation. And they will be the witnesses that the Lord will use during that time. But his people will be persecuted. It will cost you most probably your life to live for Christ in the tribulation period. But the endurance is proof that you're genuine. It's in the endurance that it's proof that you're genuine. It's not the endurance makes you saved. The endurance is the fact, shows the fact that you are saved. You understand? There is no work, no human hand can do a single thing to lift the burden of sin. Only Jesus can do that through the cross. And when he did that for you and you proclaimed by faith in him, uh, the, 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 the reality of that, the, the fact that it's real in your life, comes through the idea that you're enduring for him, that you're abiding in him. Those are evidences that you are. They aren't the path. You know, many take this scripture and they say, well, see, here it says, if you don't endure to the end, you will not be saved. What it's saying is those people during this period of time of intense persecution that are, that are experiencing this heaviness upon them, that the, their endurance will be the evidence of their salvation. The fact that it's real. Jesus says in verse 10 that um, some will find out that their faith wasn't real at all. In fact, some of them will turn away. It says, and they will, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, it talks about brother turning against brother, father against son, mother against daughter. No family blood is thick enough to uh, you know, overcome that. Many, many people will depart. They'll fall away. And why will they fall away? Why will they fall away? I think John says it best in 1 John 2, 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour. Again, he's saying Jesus is coming back at any time. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. He's saying there have been many already. This is like 90-ish A.D., you know, or, or sometime 80-ish, 90-ish A.D. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What does that mean? That means that they said they were Christians, but they really weren't. They said they were Christians, but they really weren't. I mean, I believe in eternal security because of the blood of Christ, because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But the evidence of it, the evidence of your salvation is found in your willingness to walk with Jesus no matter what. If you fall away, and I'm not talking about tripping up in sin. I'm talking about walking away from Christ 
If you walk away from Christ, that very well may mean that your faith wasn't genuine in the first place. That's what he says here. He's saying there were some that were of us who were among us, but they went out from us because they were never of us. They were never true, legitimate Christians, and there are those in the church that fit that mold. And, you know, that's for you to figure out. It's not for me to figure out. Are you saved? Are you not saved? Well, how do you know? The Bible tells us that there's fruit in our life, that there's been genuine change. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creature. All the old things have passed away. Everything's become new. There is evidences that we can see in our lives. Now, you know, you might get caught in the Romans 7 loop. The things that I'm not, I want to do, I'm not doing. The things that I want to do, I'm not doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know if I'm saved. Am I saved? I don't know. You might get caught in that, but the reality of it is if you're trusting in Christ and you're walking in Christ, you're doing everything you can do and you're repenting when you fall, you know, then you can trust the Lord if you're doing those things. There's fruit in your life. But you have to ask yourself, if there is no fruit in my life, am I genuinely saved? And do I really have Jesus in here? Am I different? Did something happen? I came to Christ when I was five years old, and I never, you know, really experienced any real life change in all of that. Listen, the Lord will tell you. It matters to him that much. That's why Paul said, examine your heart. See if you're in the faith. He wants you to go before the Lord and say, God, I honestly strip myself right now of, 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 my, of everything that I am, and I'm asking you, Lord, do I need you for real? Or do I just need to recommit to you? Where do I stand with you, Lord? If your heart is to walk with the Lord, then you'll be just be doing that. That'll be natural to you because you love him. Dan was just sharing with us in the prayer room this morning. We don't obey God because we have to. We obey him because we love him. We don't obey God because we have to. Oh, I have to do this. Oh, I got to read my Bible today or God's going to get really mad at me. No, I read my Bible because I love God and I want to know Him. And I want to know more about Him. And I believe that He wants to speak to me. And that's why I take the time to do it. The Bible says lawlessness will increase as a result of the love of many grown cold. When you have many fall away from the faith and you have all this chaos going on, you can see how easy it would be. Lawlessness is going to increase. There's going to be all kinds of looting and rioting and all kinds of craziness happening you can see where the love of many would grow cold. I can see it in the church today. I wonder what it will be like in those days. It will be a time period in the history of the world of the most difficult Christian living ever. Most difficult Christian living ever. You think your life is hard? These people's lives will be incredibly harder than yours. Thank God that he placed you here on this side that you know him today if you do. Thank God that he waited for you. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. There is a parallel of what's going on in the, in the seals, the seven seals Jesus gives here and what he's saying in Matthew 24. Revelation chapter 6 we find the opening passage here, we find Jesus is being revealed in chapter 5. He has is, he is taken the scroll into his hand. It's him. He, he's the only one worthy to open the scroll. 
He paid the price. He bought that with his blood, and so he takes that, that scroll, which I believe to be the title deed of the earth that he won at the cross, and he takes the scroll, and it says, now, verse 1, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he, was, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Listen, this rider right here is not Jesus Christ, it's the Antichrist. The first seal, it's a judgment. He's pulling off the judgment. The, the rider that comes is <clears throat> the Antichrist. How do we know that? The description of him is different than Jesus Christ. That we see in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes. The, the crown that this that the Antichrist here is wearing is a Stephanos crown. It was a crown given to him. The crown that Jesus wears is a diadem crown. It is a king's crown. He won that crown fair and square. Two different crowns. Jesus comes back with a sword. This one guy comes back with a bow. Two different people. The Antichrist is going to come out to conquer, conquering and to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. There will be lawlessness, as we just talked about in Matthew 24. That will increase. People will just be slaying each other during this time. There will be looting and murdering like never has happened before. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I, heard, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts for a, a barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil uh, and the wine. There is going to be famine on the earth during this time. Listen, if you like bread, eat it now. Because it's going to be too expensive. You're going to be hashtag low carb during this time. You are not going to be eating any bread at all because, dude, it's going to take like a year's salary to buy a, make a sandwich. You know, it's crazy. But there's going to be extreme, extreme famine, and food will be so scarce it'll be extremely expensive. Verse 7, when he opened up the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw, another under the, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given uh, then each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You know, the Word of God tells us that had this day not been shortened, we'll read it later, had the day not been shortened, no one would survive it. That's how bad it will be. There's a number that God has here, apparently, that He will allow X amount of people to die, X amount of, uh, of people, will, martyrs will die for their faith. And then Jesus will come back. Listen, the, those who have given their lives for Christ, they have a special seat in heaven. They sit under the altar. These slain, I believe, are probably all of 
those who have given their lives for Christ, before the tribulation period and during the tribulation period, they will not be avenged until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who, who will be killed as they themselves had been for the sake of the gospel. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, many people will give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And then as we continue on in, in the rest of uh, chapter 6, we'll look at that later because that all pertains to the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. But this is the, the first parts of the um, tribulation period. My point in reading this is, is, is to show you that the seals being broken, they, they line up with what's being spoken in Matthew chapter 24. They align. Jesus, the, the word of God is defining itself. It's helping us understand what that will look like. The timing is clear in the passage. Although there are partial fulfillments of prophecy throughout history, the tribulation is the full fulfillment of what Jesus is speaking about here. And then he comes to verse 14. And notice what it says. The gospel will be preached to the whole world before the second coming of Christ. Not so that the second coming of Christ will happen. Contrary to popular belief, the entire world will have heard the gospel before Jesus comes back. In spite of all the persecution, all the troubles that will occur during this time, people will still present the gospel. People will die for their faith for Christ. The Lord will make sure that the whole world hears the good news of Jesus Christ. That the Son of God and God the Son has come down. That He gave His life for you and I. He traded His righteousness for your sin. You know, He died for you. He rose again from the dead for you so that you could be saved. This is God's redemptive plan. And He did it for you. And His message will go out into the whole earth. And we want to talk about the Bushmen in Africa, you know, to give ourselves excuses about why we're not living for Jesus today because the Bushmen in Africa, how can God be so just that they die without hearing Jesus? How do you know they haven't heard about Jesus? How do you know that they haven't heard about Jesus? How do you know that an angel has not appeared to them and preached the gospel to them? Do you know that during this time that's exactly what will happen? Revelation 14, verses 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him and may, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. How do you know that not everybody in the bush has heard about Jesus? Stop using those stupid excuses. Tell people about Jesus where you can tell them about Jesus and let God worry about all of the rest of that. When people come and talk to you about, you know, the bush portion in Africa, it's, it's a diversion. They don't want to be faced with the gospel. That's the reality. And so, you know, the Bible says you don't throw your pearls before swine. If people don't want to hear the gospel, we proclaim what we to open ears, but if they don't want to hear, Jesus turned and walked away. But listen to me when I say this. Your heart should break for these people. Your heart should break for these people. When you understand what's being spoken of and what will happen during this period of time, your heart should grieve for these people. Nothing will stop the gospel from going forward to all nations, not the Antichrist, 
not the alignment of all the world against Christians, not any principality or power. The gospel will go forward. And listen, I want to exhort you this morning, church, to not, to not cower from sharing the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Listen to me. It has, it has divine power to do work that no words that you can muster could do. Stop trying to make it fancy. Stop trying to make it, you know, uh, really applicable to people's lives, relevant, all that stuff. Just tell them the word. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world should be saved through him. You don't have to figure out some fancy way to say that. You just tell people the truth. God loves you. He died for you. Do you want to receive him today? It's that simple. You don't have to come up with great analogies about, you know, the, the farmer who had a bird in his thing. And then, you know, you have to, those are cool. I'm not downing that. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, you know they're, they're great illustrations. But, but so oftentimes we get ourselves so worked up about what we're going to say that we say nothing. Just speak the word of God. It has the power to move people to repentance. So speak the word of God with boldness. Don't be ashamed of it. Listen, the time is coming. John said 2,000 years ago, we're in the last days. We are in the last days. I can't exhort you enough to go out and tell people about Jesus. Listen, don't get wrapped up in the horizontal. The daily bustle, do-do-do-do-do, just making my money, you know, going to get the bacon for the wife and all that. she got to have shoes, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you're so stuck on living for the horizontal that you forget about the eternal gospel that changes lives forever. So I'm, I'm just saying, if you don't have an urgency in your heart today, man, let this be, uh, you know, some sort of a, 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 a fan that will fan the flame of your heart that will get you going. Because time is short, and, and you can, and you know, the cynic in you already, I know, is saying this. They've been saying that for years. They've been saying that for years. Yeah, they have, but one day it will come to be, and that day could be today. And I don't want to stand before the Lord saying, Lord, I, I just, I thought I had more time. I thought I had more time. I thought I had more time for my family members. I thought I had more time for my coworkers. I thought I had more time for my friends. I was just... I was just trying to be friends with them. You know, I was trying to be a bridge and trying to work, you know, the, the way so I could kind of bring the gospel in. Just tell them. Just tell them. Listen, I, one of my friends um, from high school, I was watching a memorial service of him yesterday. He was 46 years old when he died. And, uh, you know, like just maybe nine or ten months ago, I, uh, the Lord put him on my heart. And so I, I reached out to him. I said, and I knew his, his dad was a pastor, and I knew that he, you know, was, you know, he, he was, he didn't live exactly like the Bible says you should live, but, you know, so, and, and he was kind of one of the popular kids at school and all that, and I was like, man, man, should I really, well, yeah, I should. I mean, because he needs to hear the gospel, and even though his dad's a preacher, he's probably heard it. But, hey, and so I sent him a message. Hey, man, what's going on with you? Um, you know, I, I had just out of the blue, and we started having a conversation. He told me he's a believer, you know, his faith is strong in the Lord, and all this kind of stuff, and, and it was cool. But then nine or ten months later, he died. And it was just one of those moments, I think, that the Lord just put on my heart to do 
And had I not done it, I would have been regretful yesterday, thinking, man, Lord, why didn't I do it? What I'm saying to you is that, number one, if you don't know Christ, you don't have all the time in the world. You think you do. You think you're invincible. You think that you're going to live another, you know, 40 or 50 years. You don't know. Just as much as we don't know the day and the hour and in the time in which Jesus will come back, you don't know the day that you will disappear from this earth. You don't know. Don't mess around with it. Come to Christ. Listen, but, but also, may that be, in, may, when the Lord puts something on your heart, do it. Do it. Do not, do not um, let yourself skate away from what he's telling you to do because he's trying to use you. You want to be used? I want to be used. But in order to be used by the Lord, you have to walk by faith. Sometimes that means you're going to walk up to somebody. You have no idea what you're going to say, but the Lord told you to go. And so you go, and you just tell them whatever comes to your heart, and the Lord will speak through that. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just this time period, Lord, in which you were desperately trying to save us from, Lord. We thank you for the redemption we have through Jesus Christ, that his blood is enough to not only cleanse us from all our sin, God, but to wipe us clean forever, to make us pure. When you see us, you see your Son, Lord. In all his perfection. And that's how you see us. This morning, Father, we do want to ask that if there's stuff going on in our lives that is not of you, that's of the flesh, that you help us remove those things this morning by just coming to you in repentance, that we turn our life to, over to you fully, God, even these little secret areas in our heart where we've hidden away, where nobody knows but you. This morning, God, we want to turn those over to you, God. We want to be released of the bondage of, of trying to live the, that life and the enemy continually whispering in your ear that you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. What are you doing? Just turn to the Lord this morning. Lord, we know you want to forgive. And it comes through repentance. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that needs to do that, that you give them the strength, Lord. Help them to act this morning. Lord, for those that are in this place this morning that don't know you, God, you, you want them to know you today, not tomorrow, not next year, not later this afternoon, right now. Your word tells us today is the day of salvation. And you are calling somebody here this morning, Lord, I know. And you're saying, hey, time is ticking. You don't know. You don't know. You don't want to... You don't want to experience what I'm talking about. You don't want to stand before me and have to take the wrath that Jesus took for you. This morning, I want to save you. And if that's you this morning, I want you to just raise your hand and say, I want the Lord in my life this morning. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand. Listen, God wants to redeem you. He wants to save you. But you've got to turn away from your life. You've got to turn and give yourself up just as he gave himself up. If that's you this morning, do it. Stop messing around. The Lord's calling you this morning. He wants you to come into right relationship. If that's you, just lift your hand up. Don't be afraid. The Lord is here. He wants to redeem you. Is there anybody this morning? There is. I promise you. There is. And I'm not trying to coerce you. I'm just telling you, the Lord knows. 
And so the choice is yours. If that's you this morning, just come up to the front and just see one of these guys up here and pray with them. They'll show you how to come into right relationship with the Lord. Father, we do thank you once again for just all that you do in our lives. We pray, Father, that you just have your way in these last moments of this service. Lord, that we don't check out, that we don't, that we, we take notice of what you said, that we see that we're not deceived this morning, God. And so do your work by your spirit now. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.